If you have a Bible, would you take it and turn to Isaiah chapter 59? Isaiah 59. And as you are turning there, let me uh, invite you to imagine that, um, that you're trying to fix your car. Some of you kids, you have to imagine that you own a car. Uh, for most of us, we have to imagine that we can actually fix a car. Um, so let's imagine all of these things. <laughs> imagine that you're trying to fix your car. It, it's not going to start. And so you start with the simplest thing. You change the battery, and it won't start. And so you think, well, the next thing I know is to change the alternator. And so you change the alternator. still won't start. And then you... That's about as far as I go, so I'm just making things up now. Uh, then you change the spark plugs. I don't know. Uh, get a new ignition switch. Eventually, you like take the whole engine out, and you just redo the whole thing. And it still won't start, so you throw your hands in the air, and you say, I've done everything. Why won't this car work? And as you are slamming your head on the steering wheel, you look at the gas gauge and realize that you don't have any fuel. <laughs> You have neglected what could be argued to be the, the first step in getting a car to start. You have no gasoline. In Isaiah 58.3, those who had been fasting and offering sacrifices and appearing to do anything and everything that they could to be righteous and to be God-fearing people, they asked the Lord, why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? As they sit in, in exile and face the judgment of the Lord, they're seeking rescue, they're seeking redemption, and it never arrives. And they assume that they have done everything that they need to do for their salvation to be realized, which leads them to conclude that it is the Lord who doesn't seem to see them or acknowledge them. They've come to him, but he is refusing to move towards them in salvation. And yet God's people are missing the fundamental first step of experiencing the redemption that's offered by the Lord. They've done everything except fill the gas tank, as it were, which is all that they needed to do. And to all of their religious activity and self-centered, self-centered, self-trusting actions, the Lord says, in part what he said back in Isaiah 30 verse 15, and this is our big idea for today. In repentance and rest is our salvation because only the Lord can rescue us. In repentance and rest is our salvation because only the Lord can rescue us. Repentance and rest. It's, it's hard to repent it's hard to cease striving, to acknowledge our sin and our inability, and instead to be still and to trust the Lord. Barry Webb writes this about this passage. He says, repentance does not come easily to any of us, and it is hardest of all for people who have become accustomed to using religion as a cover for their sin. When their prayers go unanswered, they find it easier to blame God than to take a long, hard look at themselves. And so Isaiah 59 invites us to take a long, hard look at ourselves, to see the, the futility of all of our religiosity and all of our show religion, and to be renewed to the quietness of a life of repentance and rest. 
And then we, we, we are to, out of that repentance and rest, we are to turn our eyes upon Jesus, to take a long, faith-filled look at what God has done to save us because it's in repentance and rest that we find our salvation because only the Lord can rescue us. So the first step on the road of repentance and rest that leads us to the Lord's rescue is found in verses one through the first part of verse 15, and it's this, the first step is be brutally honest about sin. Be brutally honest about sin. I wanna read, let, let, let's read Isaiah 59, one through the middle of verse 15, uh, middle of verse 15, we'll call it 15a. Uh, and as we read, uh, I wanna see, see if you can spot the difference of language, the sort of shift in language that happens between verses one through eight and verses nine through 15, okay? Isaiah 59, beginning in verse one. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies and your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their egg dies. And from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked, no one who treads on them knows peace. Verse nine, therefore justice is far from us and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away for truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. So to begin, we're gonna be brutally honest about sin. Verses one through two set the passage up for us by refuting in many ways Isaiah 58, three. Uh, Isaiah is, is clear that it is not the Lord's arm that is too short to reach out and to help his people, 
And it's not that his ears are deaf to their cries. Of course, uh, this is all what we call anthropomorphic language, where God has given human characteristics like arms and, and ears. God is spirit. He, he does not have arms or ears. But these descriptions help us to, to see that God and his people are not separated because of some shortcoming in the Lord. But as verse 2 makes clear, it is the sins of the people that have moved them far away from the Lord. Their iniquities have hidden his face from them so that he does not hear their cries. The people say to the Lord, why are you so far from us? And the Lord says, I'm not the one that moved away. When we're tempted to to accuse the Lord of inability or, or indifference towards us, we need to be reminded that it is our sin, our sin that separates us from the Father. Having clarified the issue, Isaiah spells out the sins that have caused this separation between him and his people. And he does this by both listing them and lamenting them. Did you, did you catch the change between verses three through eight and verses nine through 15 when we read them? In verses three through eight, we see the prophet using the word there very often as if he's pointing out the sins of others. While in verses 9 through 15, he uses the word we, as he and the faithful remnant own up to their own sin and rebellion, as well as the sin and the rebellion of the, of the wider nation that they are a part of. Verses 3 through 8 are description, verses 9 through 15 are confession. Or we could say that verses 3 through 8, in verses 3 through 8, the faithful list the people's sin, and in 9 through 15, the faithful lament their own sin. Let's use those headings. So first, the, the faithful list the people's sin. The faithful list the people's sin. And in this list, verse three speaks of hands, fingers, lips, and tongues. And it says that they are all stained by sin. What we do and what we say are often the source of our wickedness. And that wickedness stains our hands and it defiles our mouths. We're like Lady Macbeth who after urging her husband to kill the king of Scotland imagines a spot of his blood on her hands. She can't wash it out no matter how hard she tries. The image of Isaiah 115 is similar to this one and it's strong. The Lord says this, when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you multiply your prayers, I will not listen. Why? Your hands are covered with blood. Can you see that picture? How often do we, do we lift blood-stained hands in prayer? How often do we hurt and harm others and then seek the blessing of the Lord in prayer? How many people in this world, in a, in a moment of desperation, raise their hands to the Lord in desperation, but their hands are covered in injustice and wickedness? and yet they still expect him to hear and to listen to them. Specifically in verse four, this wickedness is a misuse of, of the law, a misuse of the legal system for personal gain at the expense of others. This is dishonesty and deception. It's, it's finding loopholes in the law that benefit us with no thought of whether it's right or how those loopholes might affect other people and hurt them. It's so-called white lies, Silence when the mistake of another person benefits us, helps our bottom line. It's mischief, it's 
backroom deals that benefit the powerful at the expense of the weak. And all of this conceives and it gives birth to iniquity. Reminds us of the language that James uses for sin. It gives birth to iniquity. The the offspring of this iniquity in verses five and six is not something great. What's the offspring? Snakes, eggs, and spiders' webs. (laughs) Happy Halloween. (laughs) Wickedness. It it lets a poison loose in our world that, that hurts and kills others. We're reminded that Sin is not victimless, no matter how private we think it is or how innocent we think it is or how small we think it is. Our words, our actions, they leave behind wickedness that harms others. They leave behind, according to this passage, black widow spiders. They're tiny and they're hidden, but they're deadly. Our wickedness puts the eggs of adders on the path of those that walk behind us so that they step on them and then are bitten. What does true righteousness do in chapter 58? True righteousness clothes the needy. What happens here? The spider webs of wickedness cannot protect us or anyone else. Like Adam and Eve that are seeking out fig leaves to cover their nakedness, often we try to cover ourselves with our own deeds. And if we try that, we're gonna find that all we have to cover ourselves with are spider webs offer no covering to us. The list continues in verses six and seven, describing violence and the murder of the innocent. Isaiah moves from hands and mouths to feet and to thoughts. It's not only what we do or what is in our mouth, but our minds and our hearts, they condemn us too. And all of this results, verse eight, in there being no justice and no peace in our world. What we do or fail to do with our hands and our mouths and our feet and our thoughts makes the, the straight path of justice crooked and it diverts the stream of peace away from other people so they never experience it. What does it mean to be brutally honest about sin? To be brutally honest about sin is to look around us with our eyes wide open to the wickedness around us, to, to see the depth and the, de- the deception of it and the deadly consequences of it. It's to see this wickedness in all people, to see that there is a wickedness in people made in God's image who rebel against his rule, as well as a wickedness in people who take God's name on but whose religion is only surface, who, who fast and seek other outward signs of devotion like those in the previous chapter, but whose hearts are consumed only with getting what they want from the Lord. We have to be willing to to acknowledge these realities, to identify the sins of our culture, to point out the sins of the church. We're tempted to minimize evil so often, to, to ignore it, to excuse it, to pretend it doesn't exist, but we do this to our own destruction. And yet, And yet we can't just be brutally honest only about the sin that's around us. Because I think that's gonna open the door to the danger of of being consumed with sort of a self-righteous judgmentalism that that is blind to our own sin or even our complicity in the sin of those around us. And so while the faithful list the people's sins, what do we see in verses nine through 15? The faithful lament their own sin. It's not just a finger that points at everyone else. The faithful lament their own sin. They see it in themselves. 
unlike verses three through eight, these verses are not a list of sins, but rather they're a description of the emotional response of the faithful remnant in Judah to seeing their sin and to seeing the sin of their nation. How different from Isaiah 58, three this is. Here, God's people are not blaming God for his distance from them and the lack of perceived blessings that they're getting from all that they're doing. Rather, they are deeply lamenting and grieving over their own sin. And not only their own sins, but the sins of those around them, the sins of their nation. They're taking them on themselves and grieving for them. Lament. Lament for sins is not something that we're very well versed or familiar with well-versed in or familiar with. So verses nine through 15 in many ways help us answer the question, what does lament look like? I'll try to describe it from this passage in three phases. This is three phrases. This is not an exhaustive definition of, of lament, but it's what lament looks like here. And first lament is honesty about, honesty about the depth of sin. Honesty about the depth of sin. Honesty about how deep it goes. The faithful who remain are, are not accusing the Lord of being far from them. In verse nine, rather, they are acknowledging how far from justice and righteousness they are. Their hope is for light and brightness, but all they have are darkness and gloom. And the darkness is rooted, verse 10, in their blindness. They even admit that they're like dead men when we lament our sin and the sin of others, we're not excusing it. We're not minimizing it. We, we are seeing it for what it is and we are agreeing with God about the ugliness of it. We are honest about the way that our sin separates us from the Lord, about the darkness that it brings into us and into our world, about the blindness that it exposes deep within us. And these admissions also get us to the heart of our sin problem. The heart of our sin problem is that we are blind and we are dead, and we are separated from the Lord. That sin is not a, a mild scratch, but sin is a disease that is deep down in us that is killing us. When we're honest about our sins and the sins of those among us, we are on the path towards lament. We have to beware of lying to ourselves about sin's depth, because if we don't properly lament our sin, we will never turn from it. Out of, this honesty, verse, in verse, out of this honesty, verse 11 says that the people growl like a bear and moan like a dove. What then is lament? It is anger and sadness over sin. That's the second thing we could say from this. Lament is anger and sadness over sin. It is anger and sadness over what sin brings into the world and over the justice and salvation that it keeps far from us and from those that we love. It is, it's Jesus before Lazarus' tomb, angered at the death that sin, that, that sin causes, but broken also over the pain that it brings into, his world, into the world. It's the righteous anger we feel when we see the way that other people are hurt and harmed. People created in God's image. We, we get angry about that, and the anger that we feel about our own sin as we see ourselves hurt others but it's also the brokenness and the weeping that comes when we think about all of the destruction and the heartache and the wickedness that is left in the wake of sin. When we see our sin and when we see the sins of others, when we, when we, when we see the, the poison that it brings into our world and the justice and the peace 
that it keeps from us and it keeps from others, then we are filled with this holy anger and also with godly sorrow. So lament is honesty about the depth of sin, it's anger and sadness over sin. And in verses 12 through 15a, lament means taking full responsibility for our sin and its results. If we are lamenting, we are taking full responsibility for our sin as well as the results that come from our sin. Taking full responsibility for our sin and its results means no blame shifting, means no minimizing, no comparing to the sins of others and finding that we think we're more righteous. It's no excuses. We see in verse 12 how numerous our sins and the sins of humanity are and we plead guilty as they testify against us. We don't deny it. When we get to the heart of our we get to the heart of our sin too. It's, it's not just the surface actions that we confess. We see in our sin that we are, we're denying the Lord. We're turning back from him. We're revolting against him. Our lying words are not just an issue of our lips. They're an issue of our hearts. It's in our hearts that lies begin and it's where slander is first conceived. Remember what Jesus says. It's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. If I'm saying wrong words, the problem isn't just my lips. It's overflowing out of my heart. And lament takes responsibility for sin by acknowledging that my heart is what rebels against the Lord. I could change all my actions, but unless I have a new heart, nothing will change. The result then is that of our, of our sin is that justice and truth are far from us. Our, our world is filled with injustice and with lies. And when we properly lament our sin and the sins of others, we see that we all in some way have had a part in that injustice and that lying. Yes, we, we see the, the sins of others, but we see our sin most clearly. In some ways, maybe we see the sins of others in black and white and 2D animation, but we see our sin in full color and 3D before us. We answer the question, what is wrong with the world just as G.K. Chesterton did? What is wrong with the world? I am. Lament and its cousins, confession and repentance seem like simple things, don't they? But they are world-changing. They are life-giving and life-preserving. Again, Barry Webb has something helpful to say. He says this, as long as there are people who weep, apostasy is not total. He goes on, the faithful few hold the door ajar, so to speak, for God to enter the situation again and drive the darkness back. The faithful few in verses nine through 15 who see their sin and see the sin of the nation and lament it are holding the door open for God to come in. If, as we read in verses one through two, sin brings separation, then repentance and lament bring salvation. The results of, of the true lament of God's faithful people bring the salvation of verses 15b through 21, the rest of the, of the chapter. They help us to, to see that we must not only be brutally honest about our sin, but after confessing and repenting and lamenting, we are called to, in verses 15 uh, through 21, rest in the Lord as our only hope. That's the second part. Rest in the Lord as our only hope. 
believe it or not, I was going to just preach verses 1 through 15a. (laughs) But there's too much hope in verses 15b through the end. And so we have to look at these verses and rest in the Lord as our only hope. Look at the second part of verse 15 through the end of the chapter. God's word says, the Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Rest in the Lord as our only hope. What we see in verses, the the first thing we see in in verse the second half of verse 15, 15b, through the first part of 16, 16a, is this, the Lord sees. The Lord sees. We could even add he hears, going back to verse 1. This is looking back to the, the summary of verses 14 and 15, this, the, the, the lack of justice and truth, the way that, that those who do what is right are the ones who are hurt. The Lord sees all this and it displeases him. It offends him. It is evil in his eyes. He sees it. And he sees that there's no one who can help. There's no man who can help. No woman that can intercede and bridge the gap that's caused by sin. No human being can mend the separation between us and God. The Lord here is acknowledging something that humanity often fails to. We look around at all of the injustice and the wickedness in the world and we think that there is some hope in this world or there's some hope in us to make things right. We imagine that there is a a man or a woman who can make things right or that we can bring justice and peace. But there is no one. There is no hope on earth but there is hope in God because God is going to act. Seeing the hopelessness of the world, he says, I will save it. So verses 16b through 21 show us that the Lord not only sees, the Lord acts. He does something about it because he's the only one that can. Remember verse one, where the Lord says that his arm is not too short to save and his ear is not so dull that it it doesn't hear and see the injustice of the world. And here he proves that by extending his arm and saving us. Sometimes, I don't know if you've ever said this, but sometimes we pridefully say, you know, if you want something done right, you gotta do it yourself. (laughs) 
Well, the Lord is the only one who can actually say that in truth. Because if salvation is gonna happen, he has to do it. If righteousness and salvation are going to enter our world, it's only gonna be because he enters our world and brings it. So in preparation to do just that, it, he, in verse 17, he dresses for battle. He puts on everything that's necessary to bring salvation. It's a righteousness as a breastplate, a helmet of salvation, garments of vengeance, a zeal as a cloak. Motyer says this, when the Lord dons this clothing, he is publicly revealing what he is, but he is also declaring what he intends to do and that he is able to do it. It is a work which will display and satisfy his righteousness, save his people, repay his foes, and be carried through to completion by the driving motivation of divine zeal. So this, this armor that he puts on, it reveals his character and it foreshadows his actions, what he's going to do. What do you know about someone who's putting on armor? They're preparing for war. And as the Lord arrives in, in verse 18, the first thing that he does to bring righteousness and salvation into the world is that he repays all of his adversaries according to their deeds. This is divine judgment, the divine judgment of the anointed conqueror that leads verse 19 to the whole world from west to east, fearing him, and rightfully so. He comes like a rushing stream, like a mighty wind in his righteous vengeance. But, verse 20, he's also the redeemer. He's the redeemer that comes to Zion. He comes to everyone who will turn from their sins, to all who repent and rest in the Messiah as their only hope he brings redemption. The Lord sees and he acts. He acts in judgment and he acts in redemption. Jesus acts in both of these ways in his first coming and he will do the same in his second coming. In his first coming, Jesus comes to live in righteousness and to bring righteousness through his life and death. He comes to, to conquer sin and death and he does it by dying. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world so that everyone who repents and turns to trust in his sacrifice will be saved from death. He's the Lamb of God who defeats Satan and evil by submitting to them so that he can then be exalted over them. In his work, Jesus not only saves us from death and the devil, but also from the, the final judgment because he's coming again and he's going to bring vengeance on his enemies. And that's mainly what this is talking about here. He doesn't come as a lamb. He comes as a roaring lion. He will redeem his people, but he will also pour out his wrath on all of his enemies and he will repay them for all of their wicked deeds. He will purge the earth of sin until righteousness and justice fill it forever. The day of judgment is coming, but now, behold, is the day of salvation. The day to repent, the day to lament, the day to, to trust in Jesus as the Messiah, believing that it's in repentance and rest that we find salvation because only the Lord can rescue us. On the last day, it is only the Lord that will save us. For we who are followers of Jesus, we find ourselves then in verse 21. There's a shift, I think, that happens in verse 21 
from what the Lord has done and will do to, to what he's equipped his, his people to do. It's a message, as it, as it were, right from the Lord to his people. And I think it fits us right here in this age where Jesus has come and yet he is still coming. Look at verse 21. Let me read it again. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. We see here that God has made a covenant, a promise with his people, a new covenant, we might say, a covenant that fulfills all the other covenants. And in it, he has given us his spirit and he's filled our mouths with words of truth and life. So here's what we've seen. We've seen that as followers of Jesus, we are those who are brutally honest about the sin in us and around us. We don't ignore it, but we lament it and we turn from it. And while we are waiting for the full redemption of the Lord, we are his ambassadors. We are enabled to reflect his image in this world. It's only by grace that we can even see the lack of justice in this world, that we can see those who are hurting and run over by the powerful, that we can see the hungry and the homeless and the naked, that we can see injustice and wickedness and not only see it, but that we hate it and we're grieved about it and we wanna do something about it for the glory of God. And verse 21 makes it clear that by God's grace through his spirit, we can do something about it. We can put on the whole armor of God, as Paul exhorts us to in Ephesians 6, so that we can bring the goodness and the blessing of God's kingdom into the world. Our anger and our sadness over sin, they don't have to stop there. They can lead us to action as we, in the power of the Spirit, put on righteousness and salvation and fight against the powers of darkness in this world. And while we leave vengeance in the Lord's hands, God's spirit is in us and his word is, is in our mouths to speak truth. So we reject the false fasting of chapter 58 that we talked about last week. And instead we seek the true righteousness of the kingdom. We list and we lament the sin in the world and in us. And then we move into the world as lights covered in God's armor, filled with his spirit wielding the sword of the spirit that brings healing and grace through the life-giving word of the gospel. Here's what I think happens. You can correct me if you think I'm wrong. But this is what I think is the wonder for the children of God. Remember, the Lord looks and there's no one who can bring salvation. So what does he do? He brings it. His arm accomplishes that salvation. And now, because of his work in we who repent and believe in Jesus, the work continues. He, as it were, not that we are the same as Jesus, but we are his ambassadors and he can look to us and he can send us as messengers that proclaim his love and his grace in word and deed. He looks and he says, who can I send? Who will go for us? Who will, who will take this, this same message? Not that, that we are uh, the sacrifice that Jesus was. Not that we are the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. But we are filled with his spirit and we are enabled to do the works that he's called us to do. And so we can say, here am I, Lord, send me. 
I will go and I will be the one who, who brings righteousness, who brings justice in this world as you enable me to do it through your power and by your spirit as I'm clothed in the armor that you give me. I will preach the message that you've given me because you've put your words into my mouth so that I can speak forth the truth of the gospel to people in deep need. What a beautiful salvation God has purchased for us in Christ, but also what a privilege to live and to speak his truth. This truth about the only hope of redemption that we have. So may God help us to do that by the power of his spirit and for his eternal glory from this time forth and forevermore. Let's take a moment of silence and reflect on God's word and then I will pray for us. Father, would you continually awaken us more and more so that we can be brutally honest about sin. The sin and the wickedness in this world that we wouldn't minimize it or brush it under the rug, but we would be brutally honest about it. That we'd be honest about the sin that is in your church, in our church. That we'd be honest about the sin that even remains in us, that your spirit is still working out. Father, and then in that, would, we, would you help us to repent and then just continually come and rest in you, knowing that you are our only hope, that having begun by the Spirit, we're not gonna be perfected by the flesh, but we will be perfected as we continue to rest in you. And then, Lord, make us your ambassadors. Make us those who are clothed in your armor of righteousness, salvation filled with a, a zeal for your glory with your word in our mouth ready to go and to tell others the good news of the gospel the only hope that there is Lord make us bold to declare the righteousness that is found in Christ alone bold to say that there is a judgment day coming there is a day when those who have not repented and believed will be judged according to their deeds but that there is hope. Lord, so much here. I pray that you would impress your truth on our hearts by your spirit and that you would lead us into your truth. I ask all this in Christ's name, amen.